Hi everyone, welcome to Reluctantly Adult, an advice podcast for people who believe they shouldn't be allowed to adult. I'm your host, Charmel Scipio, and I reluctantly adult. For the last month, we've been talking about sex. The first two episodes were a roundtable with all guys and then a roundtable with all ladies, um, just talking about how they relate to sex and sort of how their life experiences um, affected that relationship. In today's episode, I talk with professional dominatrix, Mistress Tissa, about how she got into kinky play as her profession, the problems with and the effect of the lack of representation in the way sex and sexuality are presented in the media and pop culture, and correcting the common misconception that a dominatrix is either a prostitute or an escort, and understanding the importance of consent. This conversation is a really great peek behind the curtain into the world of a professional dom. It's something that I always sort of wanted to to understand. I wanted to understand the mechanics behind it. And I think given sort of the rise of the conversation of BDSM, thanks to Fifty Shades of Grey, I think that it's something that a lot more people have an interest in or at least have a basis for comparison to. Um, So I thought that it would be a good idea uh, to talk to someone that does something completely different and completely out of the ordinary for their, their profession. In this conversation, she presents some really practical advice for anyone who, who has sex um, and wants to apply some of these things to their own private lives. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Reluctantly Adult. Please introduce yourself to the people. I am Mistress Tissa. And can you tell us uh, sort of what you do and how you got into your, your field? Yes, I am a professional dominatrix. Um, I've been active for eight years and professional for the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, how I got into it was kind of a gradual progression. Um, I have been doing kinky play since I was a child and uh, realized I was a dominant um, when I was about 18, which was over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, hop, skip and jump forward, got involved uh, with the community and just kind of a natural progression to making it my vocation. Cool. So in in sort of you making this making this your profession, um, was it something that you you sort of went out and talked about a lot or was it a thing where you kind of had to figure out how to get into it sort of behind the scenes? Um. Well, I am, uh, I'm an alpha personality type. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to just go after things and just make them happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm good at manifesting things. And um, also, I had had a personal goal since I was about maybe 18 of wanting to be Mm -hmm. self-employed. And uh, I don't work, I I guess I I don't really work well under other people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, it just kind of, it just came together. And I uh, just started out independently um, and went full force into it. Okay. So can you tell me just off of the top, like what is there? I think a lot of people have a lot of different ideas um, and interpretations of what BDSM is Um, sort of in your own words. What is BDSM? Well, first of all, for those who don't know, BDSM is a compound acronym. Mm-hmm. Um, the first two letters, B and D, stand for bondage and discipline. Uh, the middle two letters, DS, stand for dominance and submission. 
and the last two letters, S and M, stand for sadism and masochism. And this really is just a general summary mm-hmm. of what is more broadly considered kink. Um, and so um, it just represents, uh, it's a convenient acronym that represents kink, although there's a lot of things that still fall under that umbrella of BDSM that are strictly you know, defined by any of those letters. I see. Um, so, I mean, really what kink is, is to put it simply, it's, it's anything that uh, a lot of people are uncomfortable with mm-hmm. in terms of how you express your sexuality. For some people, it can just be spanking. And for others, it's very taboo role plays um, that would outside of kink spaces be looked at as possibly criminal, mm-hmm. but are done, of course, in a consensual space. And uh, it's a whole different uh, ballgame when you're in a consensual kink space. That's, yeah, like, so so basically, I, 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 I don't know if I'm interpreting sort of your answer right, but I, what I noticed is that you avoided the word normal, which I appreciate because I think in, in that regard, like, people define normal for themselves. Um, and I, I, think that, I think that that was intentional, no? You are correct. Normal is... Uh, highly subjective. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my normal may not be your normal right. and may not be the person who's listening normal, right? right? Normal for me is kink, but mm-hmm. for a lot of people, of course, that is completely abnormal and some people think it's, uh, it's crazy, mm-hmm. you know? So, right, exactly. That's why I don't use the word normal. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so you you said on the start that you're in an alpha personality and that you're you're kind of a, a domineering like you're a take charge type of person. And I think in your your role and this is just my interpretation of it is that you sort of are flipping who is traditionally seen as being a dominant person and who is submissive um on your on your um on its head. So, you know, has this always been like the, the way that you have been sort of always pushing back against um, norms um, uh, as a, as a whole, just, just saying, no, that's not for me. I'm doing my own thing. I've always been a rebel. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always, and I, I, for as long as I can remember, have uh, liked to challenge um, ideas, especially Mm -hmm. traditions. Now that said, I I'm not an alpha. I'm not a dominant woman Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to subvert anything. It's not an attempt to play around with anything. It's just an authentic aspect of who I am. Mm -hmm. But yes, I do like to challenge things um, and uh, play around with norms a lot. And that's, you know what, that actually leads me into my next question, which is, because you're someone that that sort of likes to, to, to challenge those things, not necessarily as as a way to purposefully be submissive, but just that that's just your personality. That's who you are. Um, Is there anything that you find troubling um, sort of with the way that society or popular culture depicts sex and sexuality, like in the culture in um, sort of in the media? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, I have had many rants about um, (laughs) how, how um, damaging society's um, handling of sex and sexuality is for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot I could say here. I mean, we could spend the rest of the interview talking about <laughs> problems here. Um, I think for me, like some of the most obvious things are that sex is almost depicted between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. 
sexuality then is presumed to always be heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, those men and women are usually white. Um, they're usually attractive. They're assumed to be cisgender. And it's usually a vanilla depiction. Right. So everything is very uh, packaged in a very particular way. And there's a lot of people and a lot of expressions that are left outside of that. Mm-hmm. On a deeper level, and probably what that relates to, and that is an expression of this fear, um, fear of what people don't understand, and thus shame. Right. And then the subsequent repression that happens from that fear. And those things trouble me quite a lot. And I think they, they create a lot of damage for people, a lot of damage. Absolutely. Um, I think that that you're right, sort of as as a black woman, I recognize that there are a lot of troubling sort of images in in media, just in general, in the in the way that I could try to find sort of sort of people to pick out. Um, so I could only imagine to not be, you know, a cisgendered, straight identifying, you know, black woman, if I sort of crossed even other types of intersectionality, how left out and isolated I would feel in not sort of seeing myself in not not only sort of mainstream media and uh, the way that those images are being portrayed, but also in the way that I think of my intimates in the way that I think of uh, things that I'm interested in sexually, like that is also not there. So that inherently might lead someone to believe that they are not air quotes normal. Um, right. And and that's scary. That's a scary thing to feel that you don't fit in somewhere. Right. And the thing is, is it's not that you don't fit in. I mean, it's just, it's that you're it, this, the feeling of invisibility. I mean, yes, I have some privilege, but because I'm Caucasian and, and uh, you know, I'm, I may be straight appearing or, you know, mm-hmm. being perceived as straight. Um, or being perceived as cis or whatever. And, and so I can kind of see myself in some depictions, but there's a lot of things that I enjoy and may identify that I don't see depicted. Um, so I have the privilege of being able to see parts of me depicted and not, but I understand the pain of people who don't see themselves depicted at all. Right. You know? um, and it's not just with regards to sexuality, but yes, I mean, sex is a very essential aspect of who we are as human beings, mm-hmm. although it varies course and importance from person to person, but it's an essential aspect of why we're all here. And, uh, and to not see yourself, you know, if you were a black cis gendered female lesbian couple, you never ever see that depicted in any conventional media ever. Right. And, uh, you know, and I know that's very painful for people. Mm-hmm. And it's going to affect your relationship with your sexuality. And so, you know, that just the thing I mentioned about, you know, shaming it's almost like because you don't see yourself depicted it's like you're being implicitly shamed absolutely and that that sort of leads me to my next question which is there's a lot of stigma and shame around even even being interested in bdsm and and wanting to explore it why why do you think that is well you know i mean we've been indoctrinated with so many ideas of who and what we are Mm -hmm. and what is and is not acceptable and common reality, as I call it, um, instead of saying normal reality or reality, you know, it's, uh, I say common reality, doesn't mm-hmm. handle sex very well, let alone the unusual and taboo sexual practices. I mean, according to common reality, what is unusual, right? right. Um, and in that, there's this implicit message that if you're interested in, like, being tied up or humiliated or whipped, then something is wrong with you. Right. And no one wants to think that something is wrong with them. 
And so for those people who do want those things, then there's this sort of fear-based relationship that's created Mm -hmm. with their desires. And, well, fear is a very effective way to control people. And so, uh, you know, you feel that shame. It's like, but, but BDSM isn't, isn't okay, right? You know, it's not okay that I want to be, uh, you know, humiliated and spit on. You know, right. some people think that stuff is, why in the world would you want that? They don't understand that. They haven't taken the time to try to understand it. Or, you know, they may be interested in that, but they're so ashamed or afraid of that desire. It's deeply repressed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then that's where that cycle of shame, I think, begins is um, a psychological concept that's called reaction formation. At least that's what Freud called it, but also cognitive dissonance, where when we are uncomfortable with some aspect of ourselves, we tend to project our discomfort onto others and shame them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, I think that's where the, the stigma comes from, people not understanding their desires and being afraid of them and uh, turning that, that fear outward and, and uh, turning it onto other people. Right. Yeah, I I think you're right in the, in a sense that if you don't see it sort of every day, like like we said earlier, you know, it it starts to feel like oh, there's something wrong with me because I'm not into this regular vanilla type of sex, and that 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 doesn't do it for me. Um, which, to your point, that's fine. Like if if that's not your jam, then that's not your jam. Um, right. right. But the societal sort of pressures that are put around people and sort of the the barriers that they're the barriers and boxes that they're put in sort of has them self-sanctioning by saying, like, if this is what you're interested in, that makes you weird and there's something wrong with you and you need to go and talk to someone or deny yourself that particular thing. Um, and I think in, I, I don't I, I'm, I'm bringing this up because I'm playing devil's advocate because some smart ass out there is going to be like, well, what about someone that's interested in things that are illegal? Clearly, that's not what we're talking about. Like, We're not talking about things that are illegal. Um, we're talking about a consenting adult who is interested, you know, in something that would essentially be considered kink um, and in right. being told by society that because you're interested in that, then you're you're sort of there's some sort of depravity in you or um, that you're some sort of deviant in that way. So Right. And one thing I'd like to mention that is really the uh, foundation of kink. A healthy kink is consent. Mm-hmm. That That is a word you will hear over and over and over in kink spaces. Consent is essential between people. Um, whether you're playing with one other person or you're playing with a group of people, consent between all parties is absolutely necessary. So, you know, of course, what you do in a, what people call lifestyle, which is just a non-professional setting, mm-hmm. lifestyle is a word that is used to describe people who just do this for um, their own enjoyment. It's I mean, I, I don't personally like the term lifestyle because I think it's too much of like when people accuse others of having a gay lifestyle in mm-hmm. a pejorative way. Um, but, but you know what I mean when I say, you know, someone is a lifestyle practitioner mm-hmm. um, versus a professional. And you can be both, of course, you know, you can do it in your personal life and do it professionally. Like I, that's like how I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but consent is essential and uh, that's one thing that people may not understand about BDSM is that when you're doing things, um, you're always, everything is very negotiated. Mm-hmm. Every, you, you know, me, I'll speak for myself. I negotiate things very thoroughly with my clients. And to speak to the illegal thing you mentioned, of course, we don't do illegal things as mm-hmm. professional, you know. And, and, of course, what is legal varies from location to location. Right. But, yes, 
um, we don't do illegal activities. So, you know what, you actually led me into the next thing that I wanted to mention is that on your site, you have the following um, sort of passage. And it says, um, I also want to be clear that I'm a professional dominatrix, not a prostitute or an escort. This is an official offer for fetish and fantasy play between consenting adults, not an offer for prostitution. Is that something that that people assume like like automatically? Does this misconception come up all the time for you that you have to expressly make that? that clear? Um, well, yes and no. Um, the idea that a professional dominatrix to people outside of kink circles, Mm -hmm. um, the idea that a professional dominatrix is a prostitute is pretty common. Um, which is why some people who are professional doms don't necessarily talk about what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, Within the culture, there is more understanding, but still there's sometimes mudslinging that happens between lifestyle players Mm -hmm. and professionals, unfortunately. It's kind of ironic, but um, I've experienced some of that. I'm being accused of, you know, being a prostitute. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it it does come up. It does come up. And I do have clients approach me um, asking for certain activities that are illegal and things that I just don't offer. But that. Thankfully, um, it doesn't happen very often, and I think it's in part because I'm very clear about that on my site. Why this is, I think it's probably a, in large part due to pornography, mm-hmm. um, in which there's a femdom genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the, the genre, if you watch any clips, um, the genre has some similarities to what we do in professional settings, but then there's other things that we don't do at all. Mm-hmm. Like in a uh, pornography clip, a femdom pornography clip, there may be intercourse happening. There may be, um, you know, the dom or or the sub could be performing oral on the other person. They may be having intercourse, and that's something that doesn't happen in a professional setting. Mm-hmm. We do that. And so I mention this because that's part of why I might receive people inquiring about that because, you know, I, I've had somebody approach me saying, I'm really, really excited about this. Um, I've watched a lot of femdom, you know, porn, and I really want to have this experience. And I may have to have a conversation with them about what they expect might happen. Right. Okay. Because, um, so, yeah. That, <laughs> that's interesting that you sort of have to, to expressly put these sort of statements like up front because sort of the the misconceptions that people get through other channels sort of seep into what it is that you do. You also have a a protocol that you, that you lay out across your, um, across your site. And it's, it's basically sort of your, your rules for engagement. If, if I'm not sort of oversimplifying that, um, did you develop this as a result of, of bad past experiences or is this just sort of good policy and good work that you ought to have this sort of list of rules of engagement before anything even gets started? It's both. Um, I tend to like to be very upfront with people about what they should expect, mm-hmm. like how I might protect their privacy or how my, how deposits work. Um, because I appreciate this when I'm on the receiving end of a service. I like to know up front, you know, what am I, once I, you know, take on uh, you as a service provider, what should I expect here? And, and I appreciate that. So I'd like to give that back in return. I also think it's just ethical and it's a good business practice. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's also from experience. I recently just revised a couple aspects of my protocol when mm-hmm. I started to notice this pattern 
of people being very careless with me about like following through. And so in order to um, sort of keep my own sanity, you know, I have to revise my protocol here and there. Right. Um, so yeah, it's both. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I happened to notice it like I like as I was doing sort of research for this, like I, I kept going through, you know, your different pages and it was just sort of like every couple couple pages, like you were like, this is the protocol, like this is what you expect around these things. Like anything outside of this, you know, may either cost extra or it is just absolutely flat out not happening sort of deal. And it, me personally, as someone who does not have any experience in BDSM, you know, it was good for me to sort of understand what your policies were and sort of where you stood and sort of what lines were drawn where and how. Yeah. So I was just going to say it's necessary because in, in when it comes to eroticism, mm-hmm. and I prefer to say that what I do is erotic work rather than sex work, mm-hmm. um, that when it comes to eroticism, that most of my clients are men. Mm-hmm. And th- this isn't meant with any sexist intent. It's more of a, I'm not an understanding of how testosterone work, works in the human body. And that is, you know, I need to be very upfront about how to behave because a lot of people, when they're very aroused, do things and they don't pay attention to boundaries. Right. And so that's why you may see something echoed and echoed and you being very clear and sounding very firm, mm-hmm. you know, with people is, uh, is knowing how, how people are. That just comes, you know, that comes with experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this, because I'm sure there are a lot of people hoping and, and praying and wishing that I would ask this. So recent mainstream interest uh, in the world of BDSM has sort of arisen, I guess I would say in the last three years, in part due to Fifty Shades of mm-hmm. Grey. What do you, th- first of all, did you read that? What did you think of it? Like, were you like, yeah, it's fine. Or were you just like, oh, God, not again. I have not read it. Mm-mm. No, I, I heard so many. I heard so many people. Most of the people whose opinions I would trust mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of good things to say about it. And I'm not the type, you know. And going back to your pushing on norms thing, mm-hmm. the norm is to jump on the bad wagon and read it because everybody's reading it. Right. And I tend to not be like that, you know. I, if I think it's going to be worth my time, I'll read it. And, and I heard so many bad things about it. I heard, you know, that people were saying it's really a depiction of an abusive relationship, which isn't at all how BDSM works when mm-hmm. it's done in a healthy way, as I mentioned earlier, with consent. Now, some people argue that it, it was there was consent, da, da, da. I don't want to get into a discussion about that, but right. I, I have not read it, but I am quite aware of how it has brought more people in, into BDSM, made them more interested in, in checking it out, yes. And sort of like, aside from like the, the prostitute or the escort sort of ideals, um, what are some of the other things that you think are the most egregious misconceptions um, of your practice that, that continue to persist? Well, I, I would say, okay, aside from the idea of uh, the escort element, I would say that it's that we're mentally ill. They're all mentally ill. That's something that you can kind of get from um, people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, uh, well, okay. Yeah, I would say that, that, we're, that we're mentally ill. That something's wrong with us, that something's wrong with you, that because you want to do this types of activity. Um, now, there are people in the community who do, in fact, struggle with mental illness, both mild and severe, mm-hmm. but there's no correlation between being kinky and being like psychotic, for example. Right, right. Um, so, you know, I don't think most people outside of, of kink culture 
are necessary aware of, like I mentioned earlier, that the foundation of this is based on consent. And they Mm -hmm. think we're just kind of going in a room together and and abusing each other or something like that. And that's, it's not at all when it's happened, uh, not at all how it happens. Everything is done very consensually. And when it's not, we see it as abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's perfectly responsible. Um, And I think you're right. I think that I think as a whole, sort of mental illness is, is always thrown around pejoratively as sort of like a slander against someone. Like if someone is mentally ill, then that makes them incapable of, of being considered sort of human or a person and being treated as such. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right in that in that respect. But something else that I wanted to, to bring up sort of in connection with with how you, you sort of talked about consent being sort of one of the cornerstones of your practice Another thing that I that I gathered through my research um, is that your practice also revolves around like trust and communication and how all of those things sort of come together in in the way that someone experiences pleasure, specifically in, in this one specific type of way. But nonetheless, sort of all of those things are part of it. Um, and in my last two recordings where I did two roundtables of vulnerability and trust and communication were, were some of the key things that came up. How do you help your either your clients individually or as couples sort of um, strengthen those areas of their relationship and, and to help themselves to, to be better at it? Well, you're absolutely right that all of those elements, trust, communication, you know, are really helpful in any relationship, whether it's your partner, it's a lover, a friend, even a family member. Um, how... I would help someone in any of those areas really will depend on the specific presenting problems. Mm -hmm. Like if someone was looking for support to deepen intimacy, for example, we will like, what I would do is I would talk with them about the barriers that they're currently experiencing to experience to um, the barriers that they have to experience Mm -hmm. a deeper sense of intimacy. Um, And then I would help them navigate those barriers. I mean, to make it very simple, um, I think that, you know, when it comes to struggles with some of those issues that blockages, you know, going back to the fear thing, Mm -hmm. that fear is a big, huge underlying or undercurrent for a lot of things, I think. And I, and when it comes to blockages in, you know, trust and being able to be vulnerable with somebody and being able to communicate with them effectively, it's coming from a fear place Mm -hmm. often. And, and sometimes that fear is from trauma. And I think once you start to acknowledge that fear, wherever it's coming from, figure out where it's coming from, and you can work through that, it can kind of act like the psycho-emotional equivalent of, like, clearing plaque out of blocked arteries, you know, Mm -hmm. so the blood starts flowing, you know, the communication starts flowing, you know, the trust starts flowing. So now if, for example... I had a person or a couple wanting to strengthen those things through kink. Mm-hmm. You know, I might take an assessment of each person's interest and see how they overlap. And then I might assign homework and mm-hmm. ask them to venture outside of their comfort zone and ask them what that feels like and, and talk a lot about it. And um, sometimes, you know, there can be real breakthroughs, mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in doing those types of things. Absolutely. Um, so I, and, and sometimes also they, people sometimes find out they're fundamentally incompatible because what is realized is, you know, 
I can't feel vulnerable because I'm interested in these BDSM activities, for example. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be BDSM, but, you know, that's what I specialize in. Um, You know, I'm interested in these sexual activities and you're not. And it's really important to me and it's not important to you. And people kind of realize, you know, they got to start making decisions. Right, right. right. So, So, uh, what happens or what are some things that a couple can do um, to add sort of elements of, BDSM into their love life um, if that's something that one of the partners is thinking that that's what they would like to try because I think a lot of people are hesitant about it in in part like we said earlier sort of like the stigma and the shame that goes around it Um, but Mm -hmm. also in ensuring that the safety of all parties involved um, because I'd imagine that if you don't know what the hell you're doing you probably damn well should not be doing this because someone could be injured if you're if you're not aware of what to be doing properly. Right, right, of course. Um, well, you know, kind of like what I just mentioned about exploring through kink, I mean, it's it's similar and like, you know, talk to your partner. Say, you know, I, I think I'm interested in this and would you be interested in exploring it with me? And I realize it's very scary for people and, you know, there's a lot I could say about how to approach that, but um, we don't have time here. Um, but, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but, um but I would say first find out what's interesting to both of you. Both mm-hmm. take an inventory of the kinds of things that are interesting. And if you're not sure where to start, you know, just look, just do some research on BDSM. There's wiki, there's, you know, just use a search engine, whatever, and start listing activities, things that interest you. And then where it overlaps, you know, you can start exploring that and, and start light. That's important. Um, if you don't have skill to do something in particular, don't do that yet. <laughs> and, um, and, and just start light and, and slowly introduce new things to it. And also be very, very careful. Like, for example, if you're going to use handcuffs, make sure that the key is right there in front of you. You know what I mean? That Those kinds of things, <laughs> safety precautions, right? right? Um, another thing is have, uh, you know, have communication around boundaries mm-hmm. up front. Like, okay, what do we do? How do I know if you're uncomfortable? How are you going to tell me that, you know, that the pain isn't a good, bad pain. It's a bad, bad pain. You know, right. like, how are you going to let me know that? That's just something we do in uh, King culture. It's called the safe word. Mm-hmm. And it's a word that's picked by the individual that indicates to the partner they're playing with that they have reached some threshold of discomfort and they need to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, so you pick, you know, pick a word that feels comfortable to you because, of course, when you're playing and you're saying no or you're saying stop, that actually might not mean those things in play. And you may say them because it's arousing for you to say those things and have someone continue because that's what's been negotiated. Right. right. So saying something completely different, like popcorn, you know, um, that that can indicate to your partner that they need to stop what you're doing. I personally prefer the stoplight method because mm-hmm. I feel like some people don't necessarily want the scene to stop entirely, but they just want that sensation that you're creating to stop. Like, let's say I were flogging somebody mm-hmm. and I reached a threshold. Um, I'd reached a threshold where they felt the sensation got a little too intense and they didn't want me to get any more intense. What I tell people to say is yellow. Mm-hmm. And yellow is kind of caution, right? Slow down. I don't want you to go any further with this sensation. Um, and then if they want me to stop the scene entirely, like I reached some trigger point for them that they are so deeply uncomfortable, they would want me to just stop everything and we need to stop the session. I would want them to say red. So that's what I would say to couples is make sure you very clearly communicate 
you know, the parameters of your play and, um, and uh, come up with some kind of way to let each other know that something's not working. That's that's actually um, a very interesting approach to it because I think everyone's familiar with uh, the term like safe word, uh, you know, to, to say something like crazy. I think uh, Kevin Hart made pineapples like a, a very popular sort of safe word. Um, yeah. But I think sort of the 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 stoplight method is um, like you said, like that, that's an, that's an even more interesting sort of approach to it because it's not sort of putting the brakes on everything. It's just saying, okay, like let's slow down on this one thing. And it could actually be applied to a number of different areas, like not even specifically looking at kink. Um, it can mm-hmm. be applied to probably just regular vanilla sex. Um, if folks wanted to do that. Um, so that's actually right. a very interesting sort of approach to it. I wanted to ask you sort of has your practice um, of BDSM, has that affected sort of the the way that you think about and approach um, intimacy or has that just sort of even in, even strengthened the, the way that you, you think about it? Well, um, what I would say for me is that speaking as a person who went through a period of time where I was kind of in a tragically vanilla relationship, Mm -hmm. which if you're a kinky person and you're trying to make the relationship work, you kind of repress that part of yourself. And I think a lot of people who have any kind of kinky proclivities can relate to this. And I think it happens quite often, Um, just like how people may be gay and pretending to be straight or Mm -hmm. trying to be straight. You know what I mean? Um, It's kind of the same thing. And, and I, and I found that when I could be honest with myself and, and, and say, no, this is what I'm into and this is really important to me that created a better intimacy with myself. Mm -hmm. And that translate of course to better intimacy in relationships. So for me, and because BDSM was so important to me that when I was able to fully integrate that into my um, sense of self, Mm -hmm. that, that made my relationships better. Yeah, I guess I guess once you're allowed to be yourself, yeah, that I think that would sort of increase the intimacy. Yeah, that's a good point. So I wanted to sort of kind of pivot like outside of, of just sort of the, the one-on-one of you and, and sort of with your clients and to sort of think about if someone wanted to um, wanted to become a dom- dominatrix, sort of what should they do to get started? Well, it depends on whether or not you want to make a living at it or just do do some work part-time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to be, if you want to make a living at it, you have to be skilled, dedicated. You have to have a good business sense. Being attractive is very helpful too, to be totally honest. <laughs> and if you're not authentically dominant, like some of us are, then you have to be really good at playing the part. Mm-hmm. Um, some clients specifically seek out people who are genuinely dominant Mm -hmm. and they might ask that they may ask questions around that. Like, are you dominant in your, the rest of your life? Do you, you know, they ask those types of questions. Mm -hmm. You have a couple options. Usually either people work through a house, which is like a, which is a professional BDSM establishment and it's run by a headmistress Mm -hmm. or you can be independent and work by yourself. If, what, whichever way you go, you have to come up with your own wardrobe and Mm -hmm. that can be very expensive buying really cheap, stuff doesn't, you know, you have to think about your reputation, you know, buying really cheap stuff might look cheap. So, you know, that's, that's going to take, that's going to take an investment as your wardrobe. When you work for a house, the headmistress usually provides pretty much everything, you know, the furniture, the space, they, they find the clients for you, they book the appointments um, and they will usually train you. 
mm-hmm. but you have to split your tribute with the house, and you may also be expected to work shifts. Mm-hmm. And and if no one books you, you're you're not going to see any clients, and so you won't get paid. So that's some of the pros and cons of that. If you're independent, you have to do everything yourself. Right. So that's your website. You have to do your own photography, marketing, social media, seeking out uh, like mentors, going to classes, workshops, reading books, all that stuff. Renting or creating your own space, which includes furniture, tools, toys, Mm -hmm. safety measures, cleaning supplies, also having to maintain the space, Um, you know, replacing things when they get worn, that kind of thing. Um, Vetting people, vetting clients, checking references, doing security, handling payment, paying taxes, and whatever else I'm not thinking of. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think it's a lot more uh, sort of in depth than uh, most people would have would have given thought to because essentially, if you're if you're independent, then you're basically a small business, like your your practice is your business, bottom line. Um, Is it a competitive industry? Or does it depend on sort of what city you're in? Yes, city will definitely you know, depend major, major cities, New York, LA, you know, San Francisco, you know, Philly and, and such, those are more competitive than, you know, Provo, Utah. Right. So yes, it's a competitive industry overall, but less competitive in smaller, like rural areas. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would have, I've never done a rural dominatrix, but I mean, I assume you have you know, you're going to have less, you're going to have less, uh, less competition, but you also may have fewer clients too. Right, right. Now, what if someone's interested in, you know, maybe connecting with a dom, sort of what are the things that they should keep in mind to ensure that they're finding a professional and not just some, I don't know, just some random person that's, that's just trying to do this. Maybe, maybe in the sense of they're trying to find a professional rather than someone that just is interested in this as a lifestyle. Right. Well, and that's a good question because there's definitely different types of people who do this. I mean, you have lifestylers and they don't usually ask for money, Mm -hmm. Um, but they have a, you know, the way that you do lifestyle play and the way you do professional play is different. There are similarities, of course, in activities, but it's, it's approached differently. Um, Then you have people who what I consider are amateurs who ask for payment. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't necessarily behave like professionals. They may not, you know, present themselves as such, but they will, you know, ask for tribute. And then you have people who, professional professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, But what you should do, what you should keep in mind is do your homework. You have to do your homework here because uh, there's also scammers out there. Um, And they show up in some places more than others because it's very easy to create an account on some sites and steal pictures from the internet and say you're an experienced dominatrix who can provide whatever the client wants, you know, and give them the fantasy and uh, and ask for payment. And in these these internet days and being able to send payment over over you know online very very easily, people will get scammed. Right. And uh, so you have to do your homework. Um, if you find someone that looks interesting to you, you know, of course, people usually start out looking in their area or wherever they they may be visiting, something like that. If you find someone that looks interesting to you, do some research on them. You know, put their name into some search engines. You know, do you get several hits on them or do you get no hits? Mm-hmm. You know, do, do they appear to have a presence in the community? A good place to check is something like Fat Life. That's a, a good place that people who are into kink tend to, um, it's kind of the Facebook of kink. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long has that person been around? What kind of reputation do they have? You know, these are the kinds of things you would, you know, people would ask themselves of any other professional, a doctor, a lawyer, you know, you want to know this kind of stuff. 
you know, do, does the person have a website? Mm-hmm. Um, do they have photos of themselves so you can actually see what they look like? Or do they just have stolen pictures? You know, things like that that are, to me, common sense things. You know, mm-hmm. like if, if you can't verify this is a real person and they've been around for a while and they've got testimonials, people leaving reviews, talking about them, things like that, then, you know, be careful. Right. And, you, you know, don't be afraid to ask. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to do this if people approach me as they might ask, you know, if they're nervous and they don't trust, you know, my, my, my time in the community or they don't trust the testimonials I have or whatever, um, you know, I say, you know, I'm willing to have, see if any of my clients are t- willing to talk to you to mm-hmm. make sure you know, that you, you, you feel safe with me because I want my clients to feel safe. Um, but so those are some things to do, you know, and uh, if you, have you have any, if you feel any, you know, anything in your gut, you have any red flags, you know, listen to those. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say. Okay. So I want to just ask you um, a couple more questions because we're, we're going to wrap up. Um, mm-hmm. When people find out sort of what you do for a living, if, if you happen to tell them, do their attitude toward you change or are they just like incredibly curious ab- about you? Well, I don't tend to talk about it with everyone. And that's mm-hmm. the reason why or the reason why is mostly because I don't really want the wrong person to find out right. and that they have that preconceived notion that we talked about earlier about like that I'm a prostitute and then they call the cops and then I'm getting grief from the cops and I have to try to assure them that I'm operating legally. It's just a headache I don't want to deal with. Right. So I'm very careful about who I talk to. My closer friends know and they're supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my family knows. And, uh, you know, I don't really know necessarily what they really think, but they're supportive. They're mm-hmm. respectful. Um, of it. So, you know, I'm careful about who I tell. I don't broadcast it really openly. I don't wear it on my sleeve, right. um, which sometimes kind of sucks for me because I feel really good about what I do. I really, uh, I really enjoy it. I, and uh, I feel proud to be able to offer safe spaces for people to explore themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it sucks to have to kind of, you know, be careful about who I talk to about it. But right. um but yeah, it's, you know, I'm usually, I'm very judicious about who I tell. So when I tell somebody, I usually feel like it's going to be received well, and it usually is. Just sort of like off the, off the top of your head, like, you know, what in your mind sort of what is the, the best thing about your being a dominatrix? And then what's sort of the thing that you think is the worst part of it? Oh, well, there's a lot of both. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of best parts. One of the, I would say the number one thing for me is I get to make a living at being myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that doesn't get much better than that, right? Absolutely. Um, it's sort of like a dream come true to be able to be self-employed doing this work that I love doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get to use my own natural personality and skills and stuff and that that's appreciated. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst part was, um, it's probably dealing with, um, probably dealing with what we call time wasters. Okay. Um, these are people, they're usually guys, I hate to say it, but they're usually guys who contact us saying they want a session and you go through all the stuff to get them, you know, you talk to them, you, you know, field their questions, you, you know, start like you're starting to prepare a session with them and then mm-hmm. they disappear. Um, and some of them do this, I think for kicks, and some of them, I think, do it because they're scared or wishy-washy. They don't know what mm-hmm. they want. Whatever. But whatever the reason, this is, this is why some doms, some dominatrices don't speak to anyone without, you know, 
being tributed for it because right. it just it, get, it gets really really tiresome because mm-hmm. I, you know you approach everybody like they're serious you know when I when you fill out my application you say you're interested in a session you know I treat it like you're serious and I give you that respect and right. I give you know I respect your time and I assume you're mine and then when I find out that's not the case it's very frustrating mm-hmm. so that's probably the worst part I would say yeah that's that's absolutely understandable and I think any time that anyone's time is wasted like it's it's just infuriating and, and frustrating right. absolutely um, so the last thing that I want to ask you is the signature question uh, for my podcast, uh, which mm-hmm. is, what is the best advice that you have never taken? Well, I don't really, since we're on the topic of BDSM or sexuality, I, would, I don't really have anything there I can answer that one with. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say... Um, <laughs> and this is going to sound funny to you, um, is the best advice I was given and I should have taken is that I should have, this is funny because I have a bachelor's in psychology. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was told that I should do some of my undergrad core work mm-hmm. at a community college and then do the rest at another university to save money. And I wish I would have done that because <laughs> student, student loans are a bitch. Oh. <laughs> so that's my answer for you. Trust me, you do not have to tell me like every day. I wish I could sort of shake some of these like high school kids and be like, listen, go to community college. It is just the same for the first two years. Trust me. Uh, you yeah. will save so much money. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, I get my student loan bill every month and I'm just like, you want me to pay how much? That's that's my birth year. Like that's that's not that's that's a per- that's a year that a person was born, not an amount to actually have to pay back. Like that's insane. Yeah. Um I'm I'm totally with you. Um so how can how can people get in contact with you um if they're interested in sort of having a session with you or they want to learn more just about what you do? Um you can visit my website, which is mistress dot com. On there, I talk about myself, my experience. Um, I talk about my interests, the things that I do in sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, my protocol, as you mentioned earlier, um, tribute amounts. Um, I have an application if you are interested in having a session. Mm-hmm. I also talk about the coaching I do um, and kind of my philosophy there. And, uh, and so you can contact me through my site. Mm-hmm. It will be sent to me. Everything is um, confidential. I practice very, very high uh, professional ethics and you know, very confidential. Everything is negotiated and communicated very carefully. And, uh, and so, yeah. So if you're interested in learning more or possibly having a session, whether it be DSM or coaching, just visit my website. Cool. Um, Mistress Tissa, thank you so, so much for uh, joining me on Reluctantly Adult. And I really appreciate you being a guest. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. And that's it. This was such an eye-opening conversation. I really appreciate Mistress Tissa for being so open and honest and showing exactly how engaging in things outside of regular vanilla sex can actually strengthen your relationships, trust, communication, and vulnerability. I think one of the major takeaways that I have is that if kink is something that you're into, um, you're not weird. Like, Don't let someone shame you into thinking that um, you're just into different things. And that's fine, you know? You go, Glen Coco. If you're interested in 
sort of incorporating the elements of kinky play into your sex life, um, be sure to go and do your research. It's really important that you do that, especially as far as the safety for yourself and your partner is concerned. Like you should really, really be cognizant of that and be aware of what it is that you're doing. So do your research and take it super, super, super slow. Also, you know, if or when you're looking for a dom, do your homework. Don't go out in these streets just accepting whatever someone puts on the internet as the gospel. Don't get yourself catfished in these dom streets. Um, You can end up probably in a worse way and poorer for it probably. So do your research. One of the things that I realized is that I didn't have uh, Mistress Tissa explain what a tribute is. And essentially, that's just payment for uh, the session that you engaged in with a dominatrix. She has a whole section on it uh, on her website. So, you know, if you're interested, you can learn more at www.mistresstissa.com. And the link will be on the web page. So tell me what you thought. Um, You can leave a comment for this episode on the website at www.ireluctantlyadult.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram at iReluctantlyAdult or on Twitter at ReluctantlyADLT. You can also send me an email at iReluctantlyAdult at gmail.com. And you can subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes. I really appreciate Mistress Tissa for being a guest today. I also want to thank Christopher Davis for my intro and my outro music and the amazing Ken Griffin for my incredibly dope logo. If you guys have any suggestions for topics that you would like to hear uh, as we continue throughout the year, just let me know. Hit me up on the email uh, or you can go to my Facebook page and drop your suggestions there as well. I hope you enjoy this and I'll see you next time.